Well, man, I am grateful uh, to be here. Uh, it's a joy. Uh, I said this earlier, and it's still true. Uh, it's a joy to, to preach God's word, to be among his people. Uh, but I think what often compels me and excites me is to be able to crack God's word open um, and not just read through words, not just flip through pages, but honestly have an opportunity to experience God as we open his word together. So I want to join Pastor Brandon in that prayer. So would y'all come uh, with me to God's presence? God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for being tender and merciful. Thank you for being loving and for being uh, gracious to us. Thank you for giving us the gift of Jesus. And thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. God, I do pray today that you would meet us in a special way that we would, as we said earlier, not just flip through pages, not just read words, but that with every word here and with every page we flip, it would be an opportunity to see your face. That we would get a sweet encounter of your presence. And that it would be unequivocal that we've met with you. That it would be incomparable of a presence. That we would not leave this place the same. So God, I pray the words of Paul in Ephesians that you would give me clarity of mind. That you would give me clarity of speech. And that you would give me courage to share so clearly your word and your good news. God... I only ask that you make me good at one thing, and that be that I get out of the way, that people would see you. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so I'm excited to be here. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 15. We're going to be there. Um, before we planted the church, I was a high school English teacher, and so I'm all about the story. I'm all about the narrative. I'm all about the details. And I think there's a lot of it in Luke chapter 15, 11 through 32. And I'm going to dissect this passage and see where we find Jesus and be encouraged and be challenged all the same. But before I get into that, I want to share with you guys this story. Two years ago, I had a conversation with my son. My son Josiah, who you'll see in just a second, um, is an incredible, incredible kid. I've always said that if I was his age, I would definitely be hanging out with him because he's cool. And I don't just say that because he's my son. I do think my son is an incredibly cool dude. Uh, and I had this incredible conversation with him that I want to bring you guys in. So why don't you guys listen? Did you have fun today? No, no. I didn't have fun. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. So me and Jake, so this is really weird. Me and Jacob have this thing. So when, when he gets hurt, I feel like a little pain in my brain. When I'm crying when I get hurt, he feels that too. Really? Yeah, it's really strange. Well, maybe you guys are so connected that you feel each other's pain, huh? Mm-hmm. That's actually a good thing. Why? Well, because when he's hurt, you're able to understand why he's hurt. And when you're hurt, he's able to understand what it feels like to be her, so that's actually a pretty good thing. That's my son, Josiah. He's 10 now. When we had that conversation, he was eight. And as you heard, he talks about the pain in his brain that he shares with his cousin, Jacob. And it was really interesting having this conversation with my son because it forced me to ask a few questions that I want to pose for us today. Do we feel each other's pain as if it were our own? 
Do we feel each other's pain as if it were our own? Does our proximity or our closeness to what we call back uptown vecinos, does our proximity to our neighbors amount for any meaningful solidarity in a time of crisis or perhaps even in a time of rejoicing? What does it matter that we are close to one another? What does it amount to? Do we feel each other's pain as if it were our own? And what I've realized is that it's often in these very simple yet honest and imaginative conversations with my son that I learn the most about God. And truthfully, one of the most significant moments that I've ever seen Jesus have involved a child. When sitting among a bunch of adults, kind of achieved adults too, a bunch of Pharisees in the room, scholars and leaders and also his followers that were in the room. He decided as he was talking about the kingdom of God to highlight a child to be most characteristic of the kingdom of God. He says, unless you have the heart of a child, unless you exhibit the kind of faith and trust that a child does, then you have no place in my kingdom. You see, it's in these conversations with young people, with children, that I often learn most about God. But you see, something happens between childhood and adulthood. Something happens between childhood and adulthood where it seems like our relationships get a little more complex. Something happens between childhood and adulthood where we grow more self-centered and more insular. Something happens between childhood and adulthood where our desire to see someone else's life flourish is radically waning. You see, we're much more insular as adults. We care less about the flourishing of others, and relationship altogether feels complex for us. But you see, the more I understand children and the more I understand God, I realize that if we are going to be anything, if we as those who profess to follow Christ are going to be anything, we've got to be creators. Now, back home, we've got a lot of artists at the church, different kinds of artists, visual artists, music artists, filmmakers, actors, a variety of artists. But one of the things that I often tell my church is that we're all creatives. We're all creatives because we've been made in the image of a creative God, creative God. All of us have the capacity to make something out of something. God has granted us the opportunity to shape and mold and form things out of the resources of life. You see, so all of us are creative. And if we're going to be anything, then we've got to be creators. But here's how I'll simplify this. All of us have to be creators of space. What kind of space is you creating? What kind of cultures are you fostering? And as a result, what kind of attitudes are you shaping in the people that are in those spaces? You see, back home, one of the things that drives us or drives our language and our action is, hey, we want to be creators of space that make family out of strangers. We want to be creators that create space that make friends out of enemies. We want to create spaces that make wholeness out of what's broken. Are we being creators of that kind of space? In essence, hospitality, which I argue is the heartbeat of Christianity, hospitality is to create a space where life can flourish. You know, oftentimes the idea of hospitality is reduced to how well you open your doors, but if you've lived in New York City long enough, you know that sometimes you don't have a door to open. So hospitality has to be more than you just opening up your physical space. No, hospitality has to be you inviting others into a space where they can find refreshment from the things that you are refreshed by. Not just your leftovers, not just the things you don't want, but the very things that refresh you, the very things that bring you life, you offer to others. And it reminds me of a story in the Bible, Luke chapter 15, 
a father and his two sons. Two very different sons, but the father creates the same space for both of them. I want to read the story to you guys. We'll start in verse 11 and we'll work our way through 32. He, Jesus, also said, Amen. Right? Interesting detail there that he starts the story by talking about a man. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, forgive the, uh, excuse me, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Detail. Big detail there. He gives the assets to both of them. Not just to the one who asked for it. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had, traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he spent everything, a f- severe famine struck the country. It almost feels like life often feels that way. Like right after you spend everything, a famine hits, and now you're like stuck with nothing. But that's the way it works. Then he went to work for one of the citizens in that country who sent him into, his field, into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. He came to his senses. As he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up. I'll go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Major detail. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, he believed. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and said, and and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. And sandals on his feet, then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. It was going hard at that party. He summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here. The servant told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and did not want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. Another great detail. His father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I could go celebrate with my friends. Kind of shows its cards a little bit here. But then, but then when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because your brother, this brother of yours who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here's a few things that I'm learning about God and as a result, I'm learning about the church and who we ought to be. God creates a safe place for us, and as a result, we as a church must be a safe space for each other's hurts. We have to create a safe space for our own hurts. Let's look at these characters for a second. The young son finds himself in a really unique position in the story, a really unique space in the story. He's in a space where his poor decisions and his circumstances are now dictating the way that he sees himself. 
His circumstance, as a result of his decisions, have brought him to a place where he is now being shaped by shame and circumstance. The story at one point describes him at his lowest point. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And then he goes on to say, I am no longer worthy to be your son. Make me a hired servant. It's really interesting to me. Physically, this young man had nothing to eat, but spiritually and emotionally, he had nothing to believe. He was convinced that his decisions have brought him to this place in his life that he could no longer be restored as a son. Matter of fact, he couldn't even consider himself to be a son any longer. You see, his life circumstances, what had resulted because of his own decisions, have closed off any possibility of him being restored as a son. And you know, there is perhaps no place worse And when you think that there is no hope for you, there is perhaps no place worse than the one that tells you that you don't belong. There is no space or place worse than the one that tells you that your past is too complicated or the one that tells you that your hurts and your burdens are too heavy to deal with. So you know what? I'll no longer be a son. Simply make me a hired servant. I could no longer be restored to this place of identity anymore. You know why? Because my life is too complicated. My burdens are too heavy. My shame is too layered. My life is far too burdensome for anyone to restore me back. The work that I need to be done in my life is far too difficult. So you know what? I'll simply settle for this role instead of the one that properly belongs to me. But I love what the father does in the story. He doesn't concede to the space. You ever ever sat in front of somebody that's in that dark place and is convinced they can no longer be restored? They're convinced that their life is too complicated. They're convinced that their burden is far too heavy. And they're just convinced of it. And you're sitting and you're seeing them spiral and you're seeing the darkness swallow up. This is part of the beauty of Advent. Advent light comes in the midst of darkness. And John 1 tells us that darkness could never overcome the light. You ever sat in front of somebody that darkness is literally swallowing them up? I love what the Father does. Instead of being okay with the space where shame and hurt dictate the identity of the son, the Father creates an entirely new space for the younger son to exist in. He says, oh, no, no, you're not going to stay in this space. This space won't define who you are. This space won't swallow up your identity. I'm going to go ahead and create a new space for you to exist in. Look at what verse 20 tells us. So he got up, went to his pops. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And I'll pause there because that might be a word for somebody. Some of us may find ourselves in a place in life that has convinced us not only that we could no longer be restored as a daughter, no longer be restored as a son, no longer be restored back to the place of dignity and value. And so we think that we are, we are too far from God. But the text here says that as the son was still far, he was seen by God. But maybe, maybe you say, okay, well, I'm, maybe God sees me from far. Maybe God has 20-20 vision. Maybe God does have that kind of extreme length with his vision. But you know what? When he sees me, there's no way he could be thoughtful of me. There's no way he could be happy with me. Let me remind y'all, this young son and his situation, he literally took his estates, took his assets, went, squandered it, and here he is now. The last thing 
that you think your parents or this father would have is compassion. So not only does he see him from a distance, but he sees him with compassion. But that was for free. That wasn't even in my notes. He ran to his son, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father creates an entirely new space for his son where his past and his poor decisions wouldn't suffocate his identity. Now, let me make this very clear. Your poor decision, our poor decisions, life circumstances will have consequences. But how many of us have felt that those consequences suffocate us? And don't allow us to move forward. That we simply stay in that place of suffocation. We simply stay in that place of darkness. Well, the father's saying, listen, your decisions might have some consequences. And they did. They did have consequences. But I'm going to create a space where we confront your consequences as a result of your poor decisions. But they won't suffocate your identity. In fact, the father creates a space where his hurts are welcome. He welcomes the pain and the darkness and the hurts of the younger son. He creates a space where his hurts are embraced. They are welcomed and they are embraced. They're not resisted. They're not turned away. They're not judged. They're not examined before we decide if we're going to be okay with these hurts. He doesn't have, he doesn't create a space where he chooses the hurts he wants to deal with. No, he embraces hurts. He welcomes hurts. He does not turn them away. He does not resist them. He does not judge them. He does not examine them before he decides to take them in. He simply takes them in. He creates a space where hurt is okay. Now, have you ever felt that kind of suffocation where you felt like your hurts just weren't okay? Where perhaps it wasn't okay to talk about that abusive relationship. Where perhaps it wasn't okay for you to talk about sexual abuse in your past. Where it wasn't okay, when it was suppressed, where it was taboo, where it wasn't invited, or where the space wasn't created, or whether it was excused simply because, you know what, ah, man, that's a big topic, I don't know if we can handle it. And it was just simply cast to the side, and you had to find a way to do something with that hurt, do something with that pain. Because listen, it, I've always encouraged my church to read the Bible, the Bible with imagination. Don't just simply come to the text and read it line by line as if it were simply a dry reading of a text. No, no. Ask the Holy Spirit as we read the Bible to fill it in with some imagination. Think about this for a moment. He went to work. The younger son went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to feed pigs. And prior to that, the text says that he spent his money in what? In prostitutes. Now, I think it's safe to say to assume that there is some shame, that there is perhaps even some abuse that he caused. That this, that this brother used his power as a son of a ruler, used his power and used his wealth to abuse others, prostitutes, women. To make them subjects to his own pleasure. And then the pain and the darkness that comes not just from using people, but perhaps the way that that has infiltrated his own life. So listen, they, you might not read it here in the text, but if you read it with some imagination and with some reality that, you know, when you are in a relationship and you're used, you deal with that baggage for years. My wife and I came into our marriage with baggage from our previous relationship simply because we didn't have the space to confront them. Read the, 
Bible with some imagination. The Father creates a space where hurts are welcome. It's the reason why we recoil. It's the reason why we say the younger brother, like the younger brother, we don't belong. When that space isn't created for us, when hurt isn't welcomed, we, we recoil and we say, I don't belong. But the father continues to create this space. He says, uh, the father said to his servants, quick, <clears throat> bring the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and Jordans on his feet. Bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now let me pause here. My parents are both immigrants from the Dominican Republic. They came in the late 70s. I grew up in Uptown. Uh, I was raised by... Um, arroz con pollo, and then pizza and french fries, merengue at home, and then Nas and Big L at school, and then, uh, you know, speaking Spanish at home, and then speaking English slang with my boy. I, 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 was, I was, I'm the product of two different worlds. But one of the things that I deeply treasure about my upbringing and my cultural uh, background is that I come from a very celebratory culture. We celebrate. We love partying. We love being with our family. We love being with friends that are family. We love stooping on the block. We love making parties out, out of whatever space we're in. Right? That's the culture I grew up in. And so when I read this, 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 cult, this, this reading means so much more to me. My family would celebrate me when I learned how to tie my shoes. My family would celebrate me when I learned how to open and close the fridge door. My family celebrated me when I finally learned how to make farina or cream of wheat. Right? They celebrated me, and it was tias and tios and abuelas and uncles, and everybody was there. And people I didn't know was part of my family, they were there. And we celebrated, and it was big. And it meant so much to me when I read that this father threw a party for his son. He celebrated this son because the party with his dad's presence as a symbol of his dad's forgiveness is the son's true place of safety now. It's the son's true place of refuge now. It's the son's true place of identity. He said, I know you came back to me thinking that you could never be restored as a son, thinking that your shame will, uh, will, will, will dictate your identity forever, but I'm going to go ahead, acknowledge that, but I'm going to go ahead and create a new space, one of celebration that offers you my forgiveness and a new place for you to find your identity in. God is making a statement here saying that celebration and joy and forgiveness are now the place where his children can be safest in. I want to pause for a second because I think it's worth asking a question about how we learn how to live with each other in this space. What does it mean for us to live out our lives with one another? And then how difficult is it for us to live out that life with one another in this space that God creates? You know, in the New Testament, over 40 times the phrase one another or each other happens. And uh, it's used oftentimes in description of the church. Who are we? Uh, phrases like pray for one another, serve one another, be kind to one another, encourage one another, love one another, etc. But the one I want to highlight here for a moment is Galatians chapter two, or 6, chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken, overpowered, overwhelmed, in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, 
In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What does it mean to live out our lives with one another? What does it mean to live out our lives with one another? Well, at least it means closeness. To live out our lives with one another at least means closeness. It means proximity. It means that we're close enough to touch each other. But perhaps if you give this a little more thought, you realize being so close to people can be dangerous. It can be dangerous. Especially with people that perhaps rub you the, right way, the wrong way. Be like, Rich, I know I'm supposed to love them, but I don't have to like them. I'm like, where did you get that from? I'm not sure how you're thinking about that. How do you practically show that? You know, it, it, it can be dangerous to be so close to one another. So, Rich, how close are we talking about? How close do I need to be to faithfully be living out the one another's of Scripture? Well, I think Paul agrees with me, or I agree with Paul, or we agree with the Lord, that it is dangerous. It is dangerous. Listen to what he says. He says, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, look at the detail. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Here's the key. Watching out for yourselves that you also won't be tempted. Listen, <clears throat> God envisions a community close enough to each other where even your weaknesses may hurt each other. God envisions a community close enough to each other where even your weaknesses may hurt each other. Church, the truth is that some of us are reluctant to get close to each other for one of two reasons. You either don't want someone to have to deal with your burdens or you don't want to deal with someone else's burden. Either way, you think it's too much for both of y'all. So you generally rather process your life by yourself in isolation. But despite the potential hurt that we may sometimes cause each other, intentionally and unintentionally, because I'm very aware that that happens, God doesn't envision those things driving us to avoid each other and not create the kind of relationships that mutually benefit one another. No, God instead, as I've said, envisions a church community close enough to each other where even their weaknesses may hurt us, but also close enough where we could restore each other. Isn't that what he says there? He says, restore one. He, you know, what I love about Paul is that he wasn't oblivious to the danger. He said, yo, if you're close enough to somebody, yeah, you know, you run the risk of being scarred by their scars. You run the risk of being so close to rubbing shoulders that, you know, their hurts. Look at this. Their hurts, oddly enough, become your hurts. And now you got to deal with the pain of their pain. And now you got to deal with the bruises of their bruises. And now you got to deal with the scars of their scars. And it becomes your own. And you see, that's scary and it's dangerous. But he says, as much as that could happen, so can the restoration. And it happens together. So he says, yo, be careful. But he doesn't say stop. He doesn't say, yo, be careful. That person over there, they're really scarred up. They got a lot of baggage. They coming with some history. So you know what? Just leave them alone. Leave them alone. That, that's, that's a little too dangerous. No, he doesn't say that. He says, hey, be mindful. This person's got some scars. Be mindful. This person is coming in with some baggage. Be mindful. This person is coming in with some darkness. But he doesn't say don't go to them. He says restore them with a gentle spirit. Be cautious as you go to them but go to them nonetheless. Then you got the older brother. This boy, this boy is repulsed by about, he's, he's repulsed about everything. And he's repulsed primarily because his pops expects him to be a part of the space that he created for the younger brother. 
He's like, I'm mad. I'm mad that you think I need to be in that space that you created for my younger brother. The older brother didn't have any imagination for a space where his brother's return would be celebrated. Hear me. This older brother had no imagination about a space that would celebrate his rebellious brother. He had no categories for a space that would forgive his rebellious brother. He had no categories in his mind about a space where his brother's debt would be canceled. No no imagination. Which is why he was as upset as he was. Verse 28, what does it say? The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He refused to go to the party. He thought to himself, if I step one foot into this party, then I'm agreeing with what my father's doing with my younger brother. No way I'm going to that party. No way I'm going to a party that that says that debt can be forgiven. No way am I going to go to a party that says that rebellion could be celebrated. No way am I going to a party where a return of a prodigal would be something that we throw apart. No way I'm going to go to that party. So he's upset and he says he will not go in. But the father, what I love about this father is that he does the same thing for the older brother that he did for the younger brother. Look what it says. Verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So what? So the father came out. So the father went out and pleaded with him. Now listen, over the years of my journey with Jesus, particularly in the last few as a leader, as a pastor, I've had to let that little detail sink in. I've had to let that little, that little detail sink in. That despite the, the spaces I often find myself in, and particularly like the older brother, feeling like I'm entitled to not go into spaces because I feel like somehow my performance and my power got me to a place. My father comes to where I'm at. Despite my hardness, he comes to where I'm at. The father doesn't create the kind of space that doesn't go to us. The father doesn't wait for either son to come to him, but rather he takes the initiative to go to both of them. What did we read earlier about the younger son? He ran to the younger son, threw his arms around his neck from a distance, right? Adorned him from head to toe and celebrated him like the son that he was before he could utter one word of repentance. Did you notice that? Before he could utter one word of repentance, the pops was already celebrating and embracing him. And now we're reading how despite the bitterness and the hardness of the older brother and his resistance to come in, the father shows gentle love toward this older brother and he comes out. Listen, the message of Jesus and the message that we carry as his church is good because it says that God's kiss and his embrace, which are both signs of love and invitation, is not the response to our repentance. It is the action that inspires our repentance. And to get those sequences wrong is to share a very different gospel than the one Jesus shared. It is not the response to our repentance. It is the action that inspires it. The question for us is how many of us have been an extension of that, Father? How many of us have been an extension of that powerful and redemptive love, please. You know, um, as a pastor, I think your pastor, uh, Pastor Brandon, and his family, quite honestly, uh, as pastoral families, we often have to wrestle through 
how we measure success. How do we measure success? How do we measure uh, faithfulness? How do we measure if our churches, as we plant them and grow them, that they're doing well? And I'm pretty sure Pastor Brandon would agree with this, that I think over time I've had to redefine metrics. I've had to tear things down and say that's not, that's not a faithful measurement. I've had to ask myself perhaps one of the biggest questions about spiritually forming myself and spiritually forming people. That success oftentimes in our journeys with Jesus takes some time. And oftentimes, not only do they take time for us to get there, but they're also, it's, our journey with Jesus is somewhat mysterious. And we have to embrace mystery. There's a lot in the scriptures that give us clarity. And there's a lot. Uh, but I think what we get in the scriptures, the clarity that we get in, in the scripture is sufficient for us to be intimate with God. But it doesn't mean that he clarifies everything. That there are certain aspects of our journey with God that are mysterious. But we're, we're such a daggone intellectual culture where everything needs to be explained. Everything needs to be clear. And really, everything needs to be clear because knowledge is to control. To have knowledge is to control. And if I can, contr- if I can have all the, no- all the knowledge that I think I need on the journey with Jesus, then I can control my journey with Jesus. But he's saying there's aspects about your journey that you just will never have clarity on. That you embrace mystery and who God is and what he's actually doing. This is a really revolutionary way of thinking about Jesus and our journey with him. And I'll say revolutionary because I think in the backdrop of our world, this is radically different. Because offering forgiveness in some cases seems ridiculous. Making past failings and deficiencies count for nothing. Rendering those who have failed equal to those who have achieved. Giving the undeserving equal shares with those who have merited their solid places in society. All of it is outrageous. To think that way, to claim that God is a God of joy and forgiveness and, and pardon, all of this is outrageous enough to get somebody crucified. And you know what? It did. It did get someone crucified. See, Jesus wasn't crucified because he unsettled some people. No, Jesus was crucified because he, he, he unsettled an entire world system. He unsettled both the system at large and then the religious system. He says, no, yeah, you're thinking about this all wrong. You see, we're part of a society that does not look favorably on total forgiveness or grace or debt cancellation. This is why following Jesus in the backdrop of our world is very revolutionary. How is the Father able to offer this kind of grace? It seems, wow, this seems whimsical that you would just offer this kind of grace. What a gentle and loving Father. But, but it cost him something. Let me point it out to you in verse 12. Look closely at what verse 12 says. You might not see it at first glance, but hopefully the Lord will help us see it. It says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he, the father, distributed the assets to them. Now, notice that the word uses two different words for the same thing. Listen. Father, give me the share of the estate the son says. That word estate there in the original language is the wealth, your properties and inheritance. Like, right? Think about a, an apartment that gets passed down to you or, 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 or think about a car that gets passed down to you. Think about a, 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 some money that gets passed down to you. I mean, growing up, I don't know that any of that is true for me, but, you know, think about something that's passed down to you like, son, here's my jacket, you know, or something like that, right? Right? It, that, that's what the word asset means. It means an actual inheritance, something that you can hold. But then, verse 13, or excuse me, the, verses after, the words after that say something really interesting. It's not the same word. 
in Greek. It's a different word. It says, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he, the Father, distributed the assets to them. Now, the word assets in the Greek is bios. Y'all know what bios is? You know what it means? It means life, biology, the study of life. Now, on one end, the son said, give me the things that are coming to me. And the father instead gave him his life. Give me the things that are coming to me. Give me the things that are coming to me. But instead, the father gave him his life. I lost my page. Give him the thing. But the father instead gave him his life. You see, the, uh, the, the goodness of the message of God is that God in Jesus was, check this, brutally generous with us. That what the son was asking him was, hey, I don't care about your life. I want what I want, and I want it now. And the father said, okay, son, I'll tear my life up for you. I'll tear my life up for you, son. You see, the reason why the father was able to be so generous with his mercy and so generous with his forgiveness and so lavish with his celebration is because he gave his life for his sons. You see, and so in the same way, God has given his life for us. It was, it was love that created this space for mercy. It was love that created space for compassion and justice. It was love that transformed the son's faith who couldn't believe himself to be a son again. It was love that helped him to believe again. Or as Zora Neale Hurston, one of my favorite authors, says, it's love that makes our souls crawl out of its hiding place. It was love. But not only ought we, uh, ought we be a church that creates a safe space for our hurts, but we should be a risky space for power. The church ought to be a risky space for power. Now think about this for a moment. The older brother has, up until this point, created for himself a place, a space, if you will, where he had the power, where he had the control to manipulate his father's hand and blessing, or at least so he thought, so he thought. He said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so that I could go celebrate with my friends. He's kind of showing his cards here for a second. He says, I wanted a party too. I just didn't want it with you. I wanted it with my friends. But you ain't never do it for me. And here I am slaving all these years. This young son of yours, he went to a far country. I stayed close. He squandered his life in disobedience. I stayed close and I was obedient. What's up with that? Why don't you ain't celebrate me? You see, in his mind, his years of obedience and close proximity to his pops were not out of genuine affection for his dad. It's not because he loved his dad so much that he stayed close, but rather as a way to exercise power over his dad when the time was right. You see, the older brother wasn't obedient because he valued intimacy. He was obedient because he valued power and performance. That's why he stayed close. You see, part of creating spaces, as our responsibility, part of creating spaces for life to flourish is either abandoning power or putting to death the selfish use of it. Pastor Ruth Padilla de Boer, she's out of Boston, says it this way. She says, as like with the unlikely Messiah of Nazareth, love demands death. Love demands death. Death to self Death to the mirage of success that society is built on, which causes injustice and an abusive creation. And perhaps it demands physical death. Only God's love can break us out of our selfish layers of protection so that we can become channels of God's love even 
in the hard place. How many of us, how many of us lead lives where we run the risk of being close to God, not for the intimacy we crave with him, but for the opportunity to have power over him? You see, the older brother complains about the years of slaving for his dad. Check this out. Check the irony. Check the irony of this. The son, the older brother, complains about his years of slaving for his dad only as a chance to make his dad a slave to his obedience. Only as a way to make his dad a slave to his obedience. You see, the father is now being held hostage by this son's obedience. Yet the father in the story is dismantling it. He's just chopping it up. He's chopping up this way of thinking with gentleness. I love it. So he's not just, he's not overlooking that his son has wrong thinking. He's addressing it, but he's doing it with gentle kindness and love. He said to his son, check this. He said, son, you are always with me. You're always with me. And everything I have is yours. Almost as if to say, son, listen to me. Listen to me, son. Your power and your performance, they mean nothing in this conversation. Your power and your performance, they mean nothing in this conversation. You could never earn for yourself what I have already freely given to you. Son, I need you to rethink your power. Son, I need you to rethink your performance. Because if you think that your power and your performance is to get my attention and to get my blessing, you've got it all wrong. That's not the space. We're not in that space, bro. This ain't the space for that. That's not the space I created for you. But you see, this was a very unwilling big brother. Very unwilling big brother. He was unwilling to see and reimagine the way that he understands his power and his performance. He's unwilling to see the merciful, gracious, welcoming, and joyful posture of his dad. He just couldn't see it. He didn't want to reimagine it any other way than the one he had in his, in his mind. It almost reminds me of someone like Jonah, who couldn't understand why God was being so gracious to his enemies. But you know what? It's interesting. Because in some ways, I understand the big brother. He's, he's, he's upset. And, and here's why. The story starts with the father dividing all the inheritance between the sons. All of it. He had already categorized it. This goes to my younger son. This goes to my older son. The younger son took his portion and he wasted it. Then he returns. And his father adorns him from head to toe, putting a ring on his finger and a robe on his back. Where could the father have gotten that? After the son squandered his, after the younger son already squandered his, he came back home, he celebrated, and he, and he does it all over again. He gives him all the same things again. Where could the father have gotten that? Where did he get that from? He got it from the older brother's portion. He took it from the older brother's portion. You see, the, the older brother thought about power and performance, convinced him, and convinced him that he was entitled to his inheritance. And you know what? He was. He was entitled to it, but he thinks to himself, listen, dad, if our younger son who left and squandered his portion and now he has to suffer the consequences, he has to suffer the consequences of his decisions, of which he's partially right. You got you to deal with the fact that you squandered your joint. His things, right? And he says, he thinks to himself, and if you, dad... If you want to be generous and merciful and forgiving, even though I harshly disagree with that posture, then you could do whatever you want. Just don't do it at my expense. Just don't do it at my expense, Dad. Don't do it at my expense. You see, this big brother was not willing to share his inheritance with his younger brother. He was not willing to suffer the loss of what he thought his power and performance had earned him. His whole world was being turned upside down, and his only reaction is outrage. 
The only reaction is outrage. But you see, if you follow the story of God more, you'll realize that there was another big brother. You realize that there was another big brother, and yes, he was willing. This brother was willing to share his inheritance. While this one refused to share his inheritance, the God story tells of tells us of another big brother who is willing. You see, his name is Jesus. And Jesus is the older brother who uses his power and what truly belongs to him and to him alone in order to celebrate his younger sisters and brothers. It was Jesus, the older brother, who didn't hold on to his heavenly robes, but instead willingly stripped himself naked and shamed so that we, those by grace and faith, would be clothed and celebrated. It's what Ephesians reminds us. But because of this great love for us, God, rich in his mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our trespasses. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. This is the gift of God. You see, unlike the father in this story, the father in heaven doesn't have to take from anyone else's inheritance. No, his, his, his riches of mercy are endless. You see, the the riches of God's kindness are endless. The riches of his forgiveness are endless. The riches of his love are endless. God doesn't run out of mercy, nor does he run out of forgiveness. He doesn't run out of grace. God gives it to us and doesn't need to take from anyone else. The biggest marker of someone who's experienced this kind of grace and forgiveness is joy. Are we living as those who create and experience, first of all, the space that God creates for us where we are safe, that our hurts are welcomed and invited? Do we enjoy the space that God has created for us through Jesus where our own power becomes risky because it doesn't stand a chance to God's power? And are we people marked by the joy of salvation? Let's pray together. God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence. I pray that we would not leave this place the same, but rather that your word would be activated in us in such a powerful way where we could not do anything else but express this powerful love. God, I pray that you would help us to be creators, creators of spaces where people and their hurts feel welcomed and embraced and invited, not resisted, not judged, not turned away. God, help us to be creators of a space that makes our power risky, where where we don't stand a chance because your power is too great and too overwhelming, and that our performance is not a matter of achieving blessing but expressing it. God, help us to be those that are marked by joy because we have been saved through your gentleness and kindness. Jesus, we have nothing else but your presence. Holy Spirit, we have nothing else but your guidance. Father, we have no one else to honor but you. We pray this in your name, Jesus.